who uh, don't have a Bible, uh, you're going to need one today. We're going to be working through Habakkuk chapter 2. If you need to use your table of contents to find the book of Habakkuk this morning, that is okay. You're, you're not going to be downgraded for that. If you go to the book of Matthew, first book of the New Testament, and go backwards just a couple of books, you'll find Habakkuk there. Uh, while Bibles are, are being passed out, raise your hand if you need one. Just quick poll. This has nothing to do with the sermon. It's been a while since we've done a song after fellowship break before the sermon started. What, do, you, do you like singing before that? Do you like going to fellowship break? Who, who likes singing a song before the sermon? There's no wrong answers. Okay, this is totally informal. Who likes just fellowship break right into preaching time? Member of the praise team. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Got you. All right. Good. That's just, just needed some feedback there. We, we were just curious about that. Thought we'd do it a little different since the boss isn't in the house today that we decided to mix things up. If you, Josh is going to Seattle to watch the Seahawks Niners game. I was not invited. Uh, granted, I'm not a fan of either team, so it didn't really matter to me. He's a big Niners fan. Hopefully you guys have bragging rights over him by the end of today. We'll see. We'll see how how full of himself he is next Sunday when he's back, or if he's going to be coming to you humbly in sorrow and grief. All right, uh, well, today is going to be part two of our series through the book of Habakkuk. Uh, I preached the last time on this at the end of November, and then I'm going to wrap up this series uh, at the end of January will be the next time that I preach. So the, the series I've titled Questioning God, as Habakkuk is a book and a prophet that is famous for the questions he asks God, such as, does, does God even care with what's happening in the world today? Is God going to do anything about injustice? Is God's justice fair? Is God even really there? And so Habakkuk's first question is prompted, we, we saw this in chapter 1, by all of the violence and injustice among the people of Judah. Habakkuk saw this and he wondered, was God going to do anything about it? Did God even notice? Did God even care? Why is he allowing this to happen? And, and God answers Habakkuk by saying, Yes, he did notice, he did care, and he was going to do something about it. It just wasn't what Habakkuk expected or necessarily wanted. He was going, God was going to send the Babylonians to judge the people of Judah for their sin. And so that answered Habakkuk's first question of, is God going to do anything? But he immediately raised a second question. The Babylonians, we know from history, we know from scripture, were a very wicked people and were certainly worse than the people of Judah. So how could God use those who were more wicked to judge those who were less wicked? Is God fair in how he is dispensing justice on Judah here? So we left part one of the sermon series with Habakkuk faithfully and patiently waiting to hear God's response. This week's passage gets Habakkuk his answer and shows that, that God is sovereign and still in power over corrupt nations. But more importantly, uh, this passage shows the contrast between someone who chooses to, to seek to advance themselves, really to their own ruin, or those who choose to follow God's ways and live a life of faith. So if you ever wanted to know how to lose it all, this, this is a really good passage to read. Uh, we're going to start by just reading this whole chunk of scripture. We're going to be in Habakkuk 2, verses 2 through 20. And then I'll, I'll break it down. We'll, we'll kind of reread them as we go. Habakkuk 2, 2 said, And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. 
Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he is never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, for how long, and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire, and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beast that terrified them, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake! To a silent stone, Arise! Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, but there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Now, obviously, this is pretty straightforward, and I don't need to explain much of anything that I just read to you, right? Like, you totally understood all the imagery, language, the five woes being pronounced on Babylon in this? Or like, can this be like five minutes and we'll just enjoy our afternoon? Now, this is, this is a confusing passage. I'll be honest. I wrestled with this one of how exactly to approach it and how to teach it because you're getting a lot of language and imagery and woes and judgments and things like that. And it's like, that's a, just a great uplifting message when we come back from Christmas of judgment on evil people. Well, let, let's break it down. So we left Habakkuk in chapter 2, verse 1, last time I preached, waiting to hear back from God as to why he would use the Babylonians for judgment on Judah. And then God answers him straight away in 2.2. God gives him a revelation. It's a vision of what will happen in the future. The Babylonians will also be judged for their sin. Meanwhile, the righteous will live by faith, trusting God to act justly in his own time. So the first thing God tells Habakkuk is that the answer awaits an appointed time. Let's reread verses 2 and 3. It says, and the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. So God is telling Habakkuk to write down the contents of this revelation that he's giving him. Habakkuk is to write it plainly on tablets so that a herald may run with it, deliver the message to other people. Uh, these verses might be a little difficult to translate of what exactly does this mean, but basic gist of it is that Habakkuk should write it down so that it's available for all to see. 
There's an appointed time for the fulfillment of this vision that God gives Habakkuk. And when the time arrives, the revelation will not prove false. People might think Habakkuk is a liar when he first delivers this message that Babylonians are coming, but don't worry, Babylonians are going to be judged as well. It's not going to happen right away, but Habakkuk should wait for its fulfillment in God's perfect timing. God's word is certain. The fulfillment of the revelation will never be early or late. God's answer awaits an appointed time. Uh, we see this even in the second coming of Christ as we wait for him. It's at an appointed time. It won't be there early nor late. We don't know the time, but we wait hopefully for when that day may come. Secondly, God assures Habakkuk that Babylon's action, they're not justified in God's sight. Let's, let's look at verses 4 and 5 again. So behold his soul, let's talk about Babylon here, behold his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest, his greed is as wide as Sheol, as the land of the dead, where the dead go. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. So God is using the Babylonians to bring uh, judgment to Judah and other nations, but that doesn't excuse Babylon's sins. Babylon is puffed up, unrighteous, drunken, arrogant, restless, and greedy. He conquers nations not out of concern for God's justice and, and to be a servant of him, but because of his own arrogance and greed. He is drunk on wine and power, and his drunkenness will betray him. In fact, we learn from Daniel chapter 5, where we get uh, more of the story of Babylon, that drunkenness was a part of what led to Babylon's eventual downfall. Uh, read Daniel chapter 5, and there's a big drunken party happening there, which is when the Persians sweep in and take them down. Babylon will also be judged for its sin, but all in God's timing. In fact, the rest of chapter 2 outlines Babylon's many sins and the judgments that are coming because of their sin. So this was the answer that Habakkuk needed to hear. Habakkuk knew that God was sovereign and holy, but he also knew that Babylon was wicked and prospering. And that, that didn't make sense to him. It threw into question God's justice. Is God fair to be doing this? But now God had made it clear that Babylon would be judged for its sin after all. Now Habakkuk knew that God was sovereign, holy, and just. The justice of God is not being taken out of the equation. Babylon would be judged for its sin. Meanwhile, God says the righteous will live by faith, trusting God to act justly in his own time. So this one phrase at the end of verse 4, the righteous shall live by faith, it's one of the most important verses in the whole Bible. It's quoted three times in the New Testament, twice by Paul in Romans 117 and Galatians 311, which Joe read for us in our call to worship, and then once again in Hebrews 1038. Uh, this verse was the key uh, to revealing the gospel to Martin Luther and launched the entire Reformation. It's a wonderful verse, verse both in its Old Testament context and it's in its New Testament fulfillment. For Habakkuk, the verse meant that he should live by faith while he waited for God's righteous judgment to fall on Babylon. The word live is also confirmation of his earlier statement in chapter 1. In Habakkuk 1.12, looked at this a month ago, Habakkuk says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. So why would the people of Judah live and not die? Because of their own righteousness? No, definitely not. Not a chance. They, God was bringing the Babylonians to judge the people of Judah because they were so sinful. They were, had totally turned away from him. But they would live because of their faith in God 
who has bound himself in a covenant relationship with his people. They would be seen as righteous by faith, not by their own works. The full implications of this verse are brought out in the New Testament, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel, or good news, is that even though we are sinners, that we do not deserve to go to heaven, Jesus died on the cross for our sins that we might be forgiven. That's why Paul writes in the book of Romans, this is Romans 1, 16 and 17, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, and then he quotes Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous shall live by faith. And this is, that's what Paul's using to do the entire book of Romans, is that we were justified by our faith, not by our works, not by obeying the law. It is not your righteousness that brings you to heaven. It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ who died for you. Christ's righteousness saves you when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, just as Habakkuk put his faith in God's love and faithfulness rather than the people of Israel who were failing. He says, Lord, you're from everlasting. Therefore, we will not die. The righteous will live by faith. Habakkuk 2.4 is, is the key verse that is really the fulcrum of this entire book. Judah has not been living by faith, so the Babylonians are being sent as judgment. Habakkuk questioned God's understand why is this happening? How does this line up with God's character? And God is now responding by contrasting the one who lives by faith and the one who lives for himself, which brings us to these five woes against the Babylonians and the judgment for their prideful lifestyle. If you saw a book at a bookstore in the self-help section that said, How to Lose It All, is, is that a book you'd be attracted to buy? I mean, may, maybe you'd be interested in it, but you probably wouldn't buy it because you're thinking, man, I've always wanted to lose everything, and here's the book that's finally going to show me how to do it. No, you might pick it up, though, in order to learn what not to do. How can I avoid losing it all in life? And, and that's what we want to do with this passage, uh, the rest of Habakkuk this morning. We want to learn how to lose it all in order that we may learn what not to do so that we will not lose it all. Does that make sense? You track with all those double negatives there. So God has risen up the Babylonians to bring judgment to the surrounding nations for their sins. However, Babylon, Babylon was not motivated by concerns for justice or service for God. Babylon was motivated purely by greed. Let's look at verse 5 one more time. It says, Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he is never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. The Babylonians were driven by greed, by the desire to have more and more and more. They weren't thinking about God at all. They conquered the surrounding nations in order to build an empire for themselves. The Babylonians thought they, thought they had it all. But in reality, they were about to lose it all. God would judge the nation of Babylon for its all-consuming greed. The passage, uh, getting into the woes in verse 6, it starts off with these words. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say dot, dot, dot. And then what follows is what's called a taunt song. You guys familiar with all the taunt songs in the Bible? They're good ones. Uh, ones we don't normally sing during praise and worship. Maybe I can see if Mark can put something together, add some music to these. So a taunt song is a song or a poem designed to mock or scorn another. And in this particular song, Babylon is mocked by the very nations that it conquered. 
And although the song is obviously directed at Babylon, Babylon actually isn't mentioned by name uh, within this passage. The words are generalized in such a way that the song could apply to anyone who acts in the way that Babylon did. So do you want to know how to lose it all? You just have to follow man's way, which is summed up by Jesus in these words, Matthew 16, 26. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? Man's way is very simple. Gain whatever you can, however you can. Man's way is the way of selfishness and greed. Man's way is to gain the world but lose your soul. Man's way is how you lose it all. So let's take a look first at man's way as described in this passage, exemplified by the Babylonians, and then we'll look at God's way uh, to conclude this message. So the taunt song in this passage is made up of five different woes. Each of the five woes in the song first identifies a specific sin of greed or selfishness and then pronounces God's judgment upon that sin. Babylon's greed manifests itself in theft, uh, injustice, violence, exploitation, and idolatry. But to what profit? The irony of this song is that those who practice these things may think that they are gaining wealth, security, power, pleasure, guidance, and direction, when in reality, they will lose all that they hope to gain. So the first woe is found in, in verses 6 to 8. It deals with the sin of theft. Let, let's read uh, the second part of verse 6, where the woe starts. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. So the sin here is identified as stealing from others in order to gain wealth for yourself. And stealing and theft are really as old as the human race. Uh, technically, the very first sin of Adam and Eve uh, involves stealing. Adam and Eve took fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, a fruit that they were not supposed to take fruit from. I don't think stealing is really the heart of that sin, but like technically that's taking place there. Stealing is such a serious sin that God made it part of the Ten Commandments. You shall not steal, Exodus 20:15. There are many specific laws in the Old Testament that deal with the problem of stealing and theft. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about stealing, we often think of someone breaking into someone's house, maybe like the wet bandits coming to Kevin McAllister's house during Christmas break, if you watched Home Alone this week. Or maybe robbing a bank, like Hans Gruber taking the Nakatomi Plaza in the also seminal Christmas movie, Die Hard, that Taylor and I watch every year. Uh, but those aren't the only two ways that we can steal. I'm guessing most of us have never robbed a house or robbed a bank. If you have, I'm interested in your story. I hope you've repented of that. Uh, talk to me afterwards. But we have stolen in many other ways. We can steal from our employers by padding our expense reports, by taking things back from the office that don't belong to us, by loafing on the job, by arriving late and leaving early, calling in sick when we're well. We can steal by shortchanging our customers, by overpricing goods or services, by price gouging in a crisis. People steal from insurance companies by making fraudulent or misleading, state misleading statements. People steal from the government by cheating on their taxes. Students steal in school by cheating on tests, plagiarizing others. Stealing is a much bigger problem than just breaking into houses or robbing banks. We're guilty of stealing anytime we take something that is not rightfully our own. So why, why do we do it? Why, why is stealing something we might struggle with? Well, we steal because we think somehow we will gain an advantage by stealing. We steal from others in order to gain wealth for ourselves, something better for ourselves. But stealing is wrong because I mean, we do harm to our neighbor when we take something that does not belong to us. 
We're deciding that we're the ones that have ownership over everything, and that belongs to me. So what is God's judgment when you steal? Well, appropriately, you will lose all that you have taken. You will lose rather than gain. We see the judgment in, in verses 7 and 8. It says, When will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and the violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. Babylon had plundered many nations. They are very powerful. Now the nations would plunder Babylon in turn. Babylon would lose everything because they had stolen from the nations. Jeremiah 17.11 says, Like the partridge that gathers a brood that she did not hatch, so is he who gets riches, but not by justice. In the midst of his days, they will leave him, and at his end, he will be a fool. We may think that we gain some type of advantage when we steal, but we never do. Adam and Eve thought that they'd become like God by taking the fruit that they weren't supposed to. Instead, they fell into sin and judgment. We need to realize that we never gain any worthwhile advantage when we take something that's not ours. Proverbs 10.2 says, Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. When you steal from others to gain wealth for yourself, God says you will lose what you have taken. The second woe is found in verses 9 and 11. It deals with the sin of injustice. Let's read verse 9. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. The sin here is identified as treating others unjustly in order to gain security for yourself. The phrase to set his nest on high, this is a picture of an eagle making its nest high in the rocky cliffs, secure, safe from trouble and harm. Babylon committed gross injustices in order to set their nest on high. They conquered cities, they exiled people to foreign lands, they subjected them to forced labor, they plundered their wealth, all in order to build Babylon's walls high and make Babylon's cities secure. This is a temptation, I think, for all of us. We all desire and long to be secure, and we are often tempted to treat others unfairly in order to strengthen our own and our family's position. But we must remember that God is just, and he pronounces a woe on those who act unjustly. So what is God's judgment for those who practice injustice? You will forfeit your life. You will lose the security you thought you had gained. This is harsh, verses 10 and 11. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. The picture here is of the person who has built a house by treating others unjustly. Everything he has was gained through unjust means, and this brings shame upon his house to the point that the house itself cries out in testimony against him. He had hoped to gain safety and security in life, but instead, God tells him his life is forfeit. Jeremiah uh, chapter 22, verses 13 and 17 touches on this. It says, Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages. But you have eyes and heart only for your dishonest gain, for shedding innocent blood, and for practicing oppression and violence. It is a lie and a deception to think that we can obtain any type of security by means of injustice. When you treat others unjustly to gain security for yourself, God says you forfeit your life. You lose the very security that you had hoped for because you are putting security in things 
that ultimately don't last. The third woe is found in verses 12 through 14. It deals with the sin of violence. Let's read verse 12. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. So the sin here is identified as hurting others in order to gain power for yourself. Once again, this is exactly what Babylon did throughout their conquest. They had a well-deserved reputation for cruelty and violence. They committed unconscionable crimes against the nations they attacked. And what was the purpose of all of this violence? The Babylonians were greedy for power. What they had was never enough. They didn't care who they hurt as long as they built their empire. Now, you may think, well, I'm not a violent person. Surely these verses don't apply to me. My response to you would be, these verses do apply to you, and my name's not Shirley. That one's for you. I put that in for my dad. Uh, You may not be a violent person, but we can all be tempted to hurt people in other ways in order to increase our own power. It happens at, at school at the time. We may not physically hurt the other person, but perhaps we say something to damage their reputation in order to strengthen our position in the peer group. It can happen at work. We, we climb our way up to that promotion by stepping on the backs of our coworkers. It can happen at home. The husband who verbally abuses his wife and kids does so in order to gain power for himself. Anytime we hurt another person in order to increase our own power, our own standing in the relationship, we've committed a type of violence against that person. And what is God's judgment for those who try to gain power through violence? All your efforts will come to nothing. This is verses 13 and 14. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God is sovereign. He is the only one with real power in this world. Every effort at grabbing power for ourselves will prove useless in the end. Seeking to live only for ourselves as the king and God of our lives, it might make us successful for a time in life. It might even make us happy. But it ultimately leads to nothing. There's only one true power in this world, and as Josh has preached the last month in Luke chapters 1 and 2, only the humble are entering the kingdom that the one true power rules over. Verse 13 captures perfectly the futility of the nations in this world as they jostle and scramble for power and command. They labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. All of their efforts are wasted in their mad dash for supremacy and control. Uh, The Babylonians thought that they were building a lasting world empire. It didn't even last a hundred years by the time they were gone. Empires come and empires go, but God remains forever. Maybe you think America is the nation that's under God's hand of blessing, and this is the hope for the world. So you dedicate, your dedication to the country is important as it is to God and family. Well, our goal is not to make America stronger and more influential. Our goal is to make God's kingdom known and available to all. Maybe you're just grabbing for a little empire of your own, whether at school or at work or at home. It doesn't matter whether you're grabbing for the whole world or just a part of it. The principle remains the same. God owns it all. You exhaust yourself for nothing when you grab power for yourself because as it says in verse 14, the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God is sovereign. God owns it all. The whole earth will be filled with his glory 
When you hurt others to gain power for yourself, God says your efforts will amount to nothing. The fourth woe is found in verses 15 and 17. It deals with the sin of exploitation. Let's read verse 15. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your own wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. So the sin here is identified as taking advantage of others in order to gain pleasure for yourself. The specific example given is that of encouraging someone to get drunk so that you can take sexual advantage of him and her. Now, if this is shocking and gross and disgusting, it's supposed to be. But unfortunately, this is what was happening in the Babylonians' time, and sadly, this still takes place in our day and age, whether through alcohol or other means. Other examples of exploiting others through own pleasure include sexual abuse, pornography. But it doesn't have to to just be sexual. Exploitation uh, is seen in gambling casinos that take advantage of poor people's hopes in order to line their own pockets. Drug dealers take advantage of people's addictions in order to benefit themselves. What is God's judgment for those who exploit others in order to increase their own pleasure? You will be filled with shame and disgrace, verses 16 and 17. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, that cup of judgment, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beast that terrified them, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. God says, you expose others for your own pleasure, now it's your turn, you're going to be exposed. You used your power to take advantage of others, now it's your turn. Judgment is coming and all your glory will be covered with disgrace. You treated others violently, now it's your turn. Your violence will return on your head and overwhelm you. Basically, God is saying is that Babylon is going to go down hard when the time comes because of the awful way they've treated not just people, but even the earth. The mention of Lebanon there is the forests, the trees of Lebanon that they just cut down and, and take down completely. When you take advantage of others to gain pleasure for yourself, God says that you will be filled with shame and disgrace. An immediate contrast that comes to mind for me is Jesus talking in Matthew 25. He's saying that those uh, who are ministering to the least of these, the hungry, the thirsty, the homeless, the poor, the sick, the imprisoned, they're actually taking care of Jesus as if he himself were there. And those who did not help those in need, they're cast into eternal punishment, while those who helped would receive eternal life. And then we get to our, our fifth and final woe. It's found in verses 18 and 20 and deals with the sin of idolatry. Uh, Let's read verse 19 first because that actually has the woe there. It says, Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it at all. The sin here is identified as trusting something other than God to direct your life. Uh, Habakkuk has already addressed the issue of idolatry several times in the book when he's talking about the Babylonians. In one eleven, he called them guilty men whose own strength is their God. In one sixteen, he said that Babylon sacrifices to his nets and burns incense to his dragnet. The nets were used to gather up all the people that they were controlling. The Babylonians were idolaters who trusted in their own strength and their own means rather than trusting God. Idolatry doesn't mean that you have to physically bow down to some sort of a statue. Anytime you trust something other than God to direct your life, you're committing the sin of idolatry. And what is God's judgment for those who trust something, anything, other than him to guide or direct their lives? Well, you're going to be deceived, and ultimately you're going to be disappointed because it's not going to do anything for you. Uh, Let's read verse 18. 
What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Uh, an idol, it has no value. It can't speak. It can't guide you. It's a false god that, that only teaches lies. Those who trust in idols are deceived and will ultimately be disappointed. And then verse 20 provides a contrast to the lifeless idol. Uh, it says, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. God is in his temple. He is holy. He is majestic. Cease all of your activity and let there be silence before him so we can listen to what he has to offer us. It's a beautiful verse that, that speaks of, of God's awesome majesty and holiness as God stands above the noise of the nations and apart from sinful man. I, I think it provides a fitting end to this entire section as those who rely on theft, injustice, violence, exploitation of others, and idolatry are told to hush, to keep silence before the Lord. God is in his temple. God is holy. Cease all your endless strivings for greater wealth, security, power, and pleasure. Be silent before him. Humble yourself before him. Turn away from your worthless idols and bow down to the Lord in heaven, who alone can fill your deepest longings and satisfy your soul. The five woes in this passage are spoken against the evil Babylonians who will take the Israelites into captivity for 70 years. But really, the woes are the excesses of the puffed up that we saw in verse 4 and expressed in contrast to the righteousness of the one who lives by faith. These woes are instructive wisdom for the believer. In each woe, the lack of faith takes the form of relying on oneself rather than relying on God. For our success, we rely on and give credit to almost anything besides God. Think about it. You probably do this in your life without realizing it. Our intelligence, wealth, logic, strength, military might, good looks, pride of status or birthplace, tenacity, problem-solving skills. The list could go on and on. All these gifts are from, from God, and we too easily give ourselves the credit for them and, and what they enable us to accomplish. This is basic idolatry of thinking this is all of ourselves. We don't need a shrine in order to worship them. They are worshiped every time we rely on them without acknowledging God. Every time we are proud of our accomplishments without noticing their source. Every time we take credit without thanksgiving. And every time we gain wealth by taking advantage of another. The woes are to remind everyone who achieves something in life to continue to live by faith and not to enter the woes of the puffed up, puffed up life. The woes demonstrate the foolishness of living a puffed up life. They stand in stark contrast to living by faith. They are most directly applicable really to government, since this is written about a nation uh, that impoverished the wealth, dignity, and security of their citizens, but they also apply to any self-centered person in pursuit of power and self-promotion, which will never be satisfied. So man's way is to gain the whole world and lose your soul. God's way is to lose your life for Christ in order that you may find it. Lose it all for him and God will restore your soul. You lose your life for Christ by serving God instead of serving yourself. So how, how do you serve God instead of self? Well, let's look at a contrast for each of the woes between God's way and man's way. So the first one, you serve God instead of self by giving rather than stealing. This is Ephesians 4.28. Paul says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that me, he may have something to share with anyone in need. 
Number two, you serve God instead of self by integrity rather than injustice. Proverbs 10.9, whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but he who makes his ways crooked will be found out. Number three, you serve God instead of self by, uh, excuse me, by compassion rather than violence. Let me read uh, Philippians 2, 1 through 3. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And it goes on to talk about the humility of Christ. Number four, you serve God instead of self by service rather than exploitation. This is Matthew uh, 20, 25 through 28. But then Jesus called to him and said, or called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You serve God, number five, instead of self by worshiping the living God instead of idols. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.9, this is Paul again. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Habakkuk wondered if God would judge the Babylonians for their sin. He wondered, is God fair to be doing this? And here in chapter 2, God shared with Habakkuk the certain judgment that would fall upon the Babylonians for their sin. Babylon would lose it all because Babylon was seeking to build an empire for itself rather than seeking to serve God. I think Jesus summarizes what our attitude should be greatly in Matthew 16, 24 through 26. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And here's that verse again. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? The people of this world desire and strive for wealth, security, power, and pleasure. They trust in idols of their own making rather than God. But their labor is only fuel for their fire. They exhaust themselves for nothing, as we read. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silenced before him. My prayer for all of us would be that we would not be puffed up souls, but that we would humble ourselves. We would recognize that we are nothing without God, that our efforts to succeed amount to nothing, and that we would turn to Jesus who came to serve by laying down his life, and we would become a people who are righteous because we live in the faith through our Savior. Let's pray together.